0: Hello, and welcome to History Connect. This podcast adds historical context to current events. I'm your host, Sam Smith, and today we'll be talking about impeachment in the United States. Welcome to the very first episode. Today we're going to cover the history of impeachment, first as a political idea, then how it came to be part of the Constitution, and then how it's been exercised throughout American history and up to the present day. This topic's definitely been hot recently. Has President Trump met the standards for impeachment? Well, we'll talk about it a lot, but to give you a spoiler, historically speaking, yes, he has, probably. But let's start in 1386, when American-style impeachment first became a concept in English law. Many of our current legal concepts are sourced in English law, of course, and the Constitution uses several phrases, including the language around impeachment, that already have long precedents in English law. These are also known to the U.S. Supreme Court as terms of art. The term high crimes and misdemeanors is particularly important. That's what we get in 1386. High crimes and misdemeanors referred to political offenses. In feudal England, it was mostly dukes and barons who were impeached for high crimes. These included misappropriating treasure, appointing incompetent subordinates, not prosecuting cases, threatening a grand jury, disobeying parliament, arresting political opponents, losing a ship at sea, and bribery. You see, not necessarily traditional crimes, more political ones. Nevertheless, of course, they were generally executed for it. So here's what the Constitution says about impeachment in Article 2, Section 4. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Conviction here refers to the verdict of the Senate, not of a criminal court. Now when the framers wrote the Constitution, they took this phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, one they all knew, and they inserted it directly. They did the same with due process, for example. They didn't spend words differentiating the American phrase from its English counterpart. And it is the long-held opinion of the Supreme Court that these terms of art should be interpreted with Framers' intent in mind. To quote Chief Justice John Marshall speaking of such terms, It is used in a very old statute of that country, whose language is our language, and whose laws form the substratum of our laws. It is scarcely conceivable that the term was not employed by the framers of our Constitution in the sense which had been affixed to it by those from whom we borrowed it. Indeed, and this is a critically important point, the framers laid out low standards for impeachment, the framers themselves. Ben Franklin said that when the executive renders himself obnoxious, James Madison said that if the president be connected in any suspicious manner with any person and there be grounds to believe he will shelter him, if he attempts to subvert the Constitution, also said Madison. James Iredell, where he had received a bribe or acted from some corrupt motive or another, and he must certainly be punishable for giving false information to the Senate. Alexander Hamilton, the abuse or violation of some public trust or injuries done immediately to the society itself. John Jay says bad behaviour. It's easy for John Jay. Now why so low, you may ask? Most presidents would incur impeachable offenses under these standards, after all. Well, the standards are checked and balanced by the difficulty of pulling it off. It takes a majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate, and a publicly acceptable vice president or other substitute, and a public willing to rock the boat so severely by removing a president. Even with these low standards, There's never been a successful, complete impeachment of a president in American history. Andrew Johnson went through the crucible in 1867, as did Bill Clinton in 1998. Nixon resigned before Congress voted on his impeachment. You might say that's one successful one, and that's fair, sure. But it's one in three at best of 45. All federal civil officers can be impeached, not including members of Congress, at their own insistence, of course. Only 19 of them, mostly judges, of presumably several thousand or more over the course of history have been impeached, and not all of them completely and successfully. The first American to be impeached was Tennessee Senator William Blount in 1797. He had actually been a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, but he was rightly accused of secret diplomacy with Great Britain, involved starting a war with Spanish-controlled Florida, Now, his impeachment was not technically successful because Congress hastily clarified that all civil officers somehow doesn't apply to members of Congress. But they did build a process for voting to expel members that's very similar to the impeachment process, and they used that against Blount. Blount was removed from office. He went back to Tennessee. He was promptly voted onto the state Senate. He tried to impeach a rival of his, a judge. failed, and he soon died. The most recent person to be impeached was Portly Thomas Porteous in 2010. If you were a raver, you might remember him as the federal judge who overturned the federal ban on glow sticks, pacifiers, and dust masks in 2002. Or you know, you might not remember much of anything. Well, in 2010 he was successfully impeached for soliciting and receiving bribes from lawyers. But he lives on in glory in every glow stick and in his hometown of New Orleans. But let's spend some more time on the presidents. We'll start with Andrew Johnson. Johnson was not elected president. Rather, he was Abraham Lincoln's vice president. He took the office after Lincoln's assassination. He was actually a compromise candidate for the re-election campaign. He was a Tennessean and a Democrat. Lincoln himself could not really stand the man, not since he delivered a rambling, incoherent, and frankly drunken inaugural address right before Lincoln gave what I believe is his most beautiful speech, in which he called for malice towards none and charity towards all. Lincoln was, right before that speech in the Capitol building, reassuring congressmen that Andy ain't a drunkard. After Andy, plainly drunk, had stood in front of Congress, the cabinet, and the Supreme Court, and shouted self-congratulations about his rise from an illiterate tailor to the second highest office in the land, He was forgetting the names of important officials even as he wagged his finger at them and accused them of elitism and trying to keep down men like himself. Granted, Johnson was born dirt poor in North Carolina. He actually ran away from home. He didn't begin to learn to read until after he was ten. Well, Lincoln was in the room, and he watched with unutterable sorrow, in the words of one observer. "'I was never so mortified in my life,' wrote another to his wife. If I had a hole, I would have dropped out of sight. After stumbling through the oath of office, needing some phrases repeated, he lifted the Bible to his lips and proclaimed, I kiss this book in the face of my nation, the United States, before giving it a long, emphatic kiss. Grotesque, reported a French diplomat. So Lincoln avoided this guy as much as possible. But... When the Great Emancipator was felled by Booth's bullet, the Tennessee Taylor took charge. Johnson was immediately tasked with rebuilding the war-ravaged country. Remember that he was a Democrat while Lincoln was a Republican. Johnson had few friends in the Capitol, and he set about losing them right away. Shortly before his death, Lincoln had laid out a plan for lenient reconstruction. Let him up easy, he said in summary, like the skilled wrestler that he was. At the same time, his Republican Party was waving the bloody shirt, as they called it, shouting for a hard hand with the South until they took steps to finally protect racial equality. These folks were known as radical Republicans. They swept into majority control of the House and supermajority control of the Senate in 1866. They didn't like Lincoln's plan, and they certainly didn't like Johnson's improvisations. These included abandoning any form of federal racial protection leaving the issue entirely to the returning Confederate states and granting such broad amnesty that the vice president of the Confederacy returned to federal Congress almost immediately after the war. Johnson denounced the radical Republicans and vetoed their first Civil Rights Act. He accused them of plotting his assassination. He traveled to their hometowns and gave speeches comparing himself to Jesus and them to the biblical betrayers. He joked about killing them. Who has suffered more for the Union than Andrew Johnson? He would close dramatically. Well, soldiers, sailors, doctors, freedmen, families, widows, orphans everybody took offense. These flat out ridiculous speeches would actually be cited in his articles of impeachment, and he also made clear his intention to clean Republican holdovers out of his cabinet. Congressional Republicans quickly passed a law making it illegal to remove cabinet officers without their consent. Johnson flouted that law and fired the Secretary of War. And the House of Representatives voted to impeach him. There were 11 articles of impeachment. Most dealt with the specifics of his violations of the so-called Tenure of Office Act. And then there was one citing his inflammatory rhetoric. The trial in the Senate lasted almost three months. Interestingly enough, the Senators refused at the outset, by a simple majority vote, to consider whether or not the Tenure of Office Act was unconstitutional. Shortly after the process was concluded, the law was repealed on constitutional grounds with the endorsement of the Supreme Court within a couple of years. But for now, it was the crime at hand. Now in theory, the underlying impact of violating the Act was that Johnson's replacements in the Cabinet would subvert Congress So there was a potentially interesting discussion to be had, despite the fact that there was no evidence of Johnson's intent in this regard, and in fact considerable evidence to the contrary. Well, bribery, not argument, was the order of the day. A subsequent Congressional investigation turned up evidence of outright cash solicitation and promises of patronage on both sides. Johnson also promised significant policy concessions in private meetings, such as a pledge not to interfere with Radical Reconstruction and to swiftly approve Radical State Constitutions. In the end, Johnson avoided impeachment by one vote in the Senate. They needed 36. They got 35. Kansas Senator Edmund Ross is typically cited as a swing vote, and there is considerable debate over his motives. Some say he received as much as $150,000 for his vote in 1868 money. Though this is merely through assuming that the entirety of the fund raised to assist Johnson, in his defense, went to Ross, which is unlikely, I think. No, I'm not sure he was bribed. He may have been, but history is silent there. We do have his correspondence, however. We know that one week afterwards he wrote to his wife, and he wrote, This storm of passion will soon pass away, and the people, the whole people, will thank and bless me for having saved the country by my single vote from the greatest peril through which it has ever passed, though none but God can ever know the struggle it has cost me." He was plainly motivated by patronage as well. After the acquittal, he wrote multiple letters to Johnson, eventually securing seats for his allies in no less than seven different offices, and plainly invoking his vote to acquit, and even making references to a mysterious meeting which may indicate that he and Johnson had made some of these deals during the trial. He and every other senator who voted to acquit was voted out of office and never returned. Johnson limped through the end of his term. He wasn't even re-nominated at the Democratic National Convention. Right before he left office, he issued a general amnesty to all former Confederates, top to bottom. He returned to Tennessee, and soon after he attempted to re-enter public life he won a bitterly contested election for Senate. So yes, in 1875, he returned to the hall in which he had stood historic trial. It was now bedecked with flowers for his arrival, and his old accuser shook his hand. He served for a few months, and then he died. As he requested, he was buried wrapped in the American flag with his head resting on the Constitution. Only in America, some have said of Andrew Johnson, the illiterate runaway who became president, lost it all and returned to the Senate. And to be fair to him, he had established a solid political reputation before the unfortunate inaugural address that harbinged so much trouble. In the words of one friend early in his career, you have been in the way of our would-be great men for a long time. At heart, many of us never wanted you to be governor. We only wanted to use you. Then, we did not want you to go to the Senate but the people would send you." And as he was eulogized, Johnson was always the same to everyone, despite the honors heaped upon him. He was kind to the humblest citizen. After the impeachment, general opinion turned against it. The public believed that another war had been narrowly avoided. Several congressmen would later renounce their involvement in the proceedings. The impeachment principle languished for nearly a hundred years, with only seven impeachments from 1880 to 1970. These seven were all federal judges, save for one cabinet secretary, the war hero turned war profiteer, William Belknap. And now we are entering the era of Richard Nixon, tricky dick, iron butt, red hunter. Born a poor California Quaker in 1913, Nixon powered his way through law school, thus iron butt and served as a communications officer in the Naval Reserve during World War II. Throughout a career in the House, Senate, and eventually the Vice Presidency under Eisenhower, Nixon built a reputation as a humble communist hunter with broad appeal. As Vice President, he confronted angry student demonstrators in Peru and was pelted with vegetables and such. They battered his limousine with pipes in Venezuela. Rosemary Woods, his secretary, was injured by shattering glass. Eisenhower deployed a carrier battle group to the coast of Venezuela and declared, I'm about ready to go put my uniform on, which for the supreme commander of the D-Day invasion is saying something. By 1960, Nixon was ready to run for president. Unfortunately, perhaps for both men, so was Jack Kennedy. Kennedy narrowly won the election by roughly 100,000 votes out of 70 million cast. It's easy to presume that at least a hundred thousand people were swayed by Kennedy's better performance in the first ever nationally televised debate. 1960 through 1968 are called Nixon's wilderness years, and indeed they were similar for the nation. Nixon lost a run for California governor and withdrew from public life for a bit. This protected him from the fallout, however, of the landslide Democratic victory in 1964 and positioned him well to renew his presidential campaign in 1968. It was a wild election, with the Vietnam War erupting in violence and Bobby Kennedy assassinated on camera moments after winning the Democratic California primary. Nixon portrayed himself as a national value, defending the orderly, silent majority. Nixon's the one, his ads assured. Nixon also promised peace with honor in Vietnam. At the same time, He made it well known the Vietnamese factions would receive better terms with him than they would with then-President Johnson, essentially precluding productive peace talks throughout the election. Well, he won the election and began to govern, generally an effective presidency by most measures. He established our first diplomatic relations with Communist China. He ended the war in Vietnam. He oversaw a successful space race. He started the war on drugs and the war on cancer supported civil rights and even the Equal Rights Amendment. Sure, there's a lot to criticize. I'm just saying he, he worked. He won re-election in 1972 in a landslide. However, that election was marred by an array of so-called dirty tricks played by Nixon's campaign team against the Democrats, highlighted by the wiretapping of DNC headquarters at the Watergate Hotel by a bumbling team of ostensible burglars who were caught while breaking in a second time because they had set the wires wrong the first time. Reporters followed the money, guided by anonymous sources, later revealed to be the deputy director of the FBI, and slowly unraveled the payment of these burglars by members of Nixon's team and then of Nixon's attempt to hinder the FBI investigation into the matter. Congress picked up the trail of journalists. The burglars, the plumbers as they called themselves, were caught on June 17, 1972, Washington Post received a tip from inside the FBI that the plumbers carried evidence of payment by Nixon's campaign staff, and the Post ran its first story on June 20th. Congress got seriously involved in May of the next year, 1973, after one of the plumbers confirmed the reporting. The issue exploded in July of 73, when it was revealed in hearings that Nixon was taping the Oval Office. Congress subpoenaed the tapes, of course, and it was sensational. The transcripts were released in paperback and sold more than a million copies. Expletive deleted was the quote of the day. The tapes revealed that Nixon was intensely involved with almost every facet of the Watergate scandal and its cover-up, something he had repeatedly denied. For many, the tapes also revealed an Oval Office in disarray. I'll give a few choice quotes, but I have to warn you that a lot of them contain outright bigotry. It must not appear that you're trying to affect the news content. That's what you must do, but you must not appear to be doing that. That would be stupid. I don't want any Jew at that dinner who didn't support us in that campaign. What you always have to remember with the Irish is they get mean. Screw state. State's always on the side of the blacks. If some Indians get shot, that's too goddamn bad. I'm not for women in any job. You know what happened to the Greeks. Homosexuality destroyed them. God damn it. Get in and get those files. Blow the safe and get them. The way I want that handled is just to break in. Break in and take it out. You understand? You know, the big Jewish contributes to the Democrats. Could we please investigate some of the expletive deleted I will say that expletive is the one thing you can't call a baseball umpire while you're arguing with him. And then finally, you know, I always wondered about that taping equipment, but I'm damn glad we have it, aren't you? He said that last one two months before the tapes were subpoenaed. There was also an 18 and a half minute gap in the tapes that was viewed with great suspicion. Nixon's loyal secretary, Rosemary, The woman who had taken the glass in Venezuela always maintained that it was an accidental erasure on her part. Well, Nixon was brought up on five articles of impeachment, the following, obstruction of justice, abuse of power, contempt of Congress, bombing Cambodia, and failure to pay taxes. The first two were passed out of committee with nearly unanimous Democratic support and significant Republican aisle crossing. To quote Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, Through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. My faith in the Constitution is whole. It is complete. It is total. I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Those who defended Nixon generally argued that they needed clear evidence of a crime somehow clearer than what was being presented. As Congress considered, another portion of the tapes was released in which Nixon was heard directing the cover-up of the investigation from the very beginning, proving him a great liar and almost certainly a criminal. The die was cast. It became clear that the full House and the Senate would vote to impeach. Instead of facing that indignity, Nixon resigned on August 9, 1974, Almost immediately after taking office, Gerald Ford pardoned him. Many high-level officials did not receive pardons and served small prison sentences. Nixon maintained his general innocence and insisted that if the liberal media had agreed with his policies, then Watergate would have been a blip. He might be right about that. Watergate, though, caused irreparable damage to the public perception of politics. If you're a politician... You must be a crook, was the general refrain. We certainly feel those effects today. In the 30 years between Nixon and Clinton, three more federal judges were impeached successfully. Bill Clinton Bill Clinton was born William Jefferson Blythe third, in August 1946. His father died in a car crash three months before he was born. As it turned out, his father had been surreptitiously married to two women, Bill Blythe adopted his stepfather's name, Clinton, when he was fifteen. He worked his way to a Fulbright scholarship, in the pursuit of which he met Hillary Rodham. And then he pursued a populist New Democrat agenda from Arkansas Attorney General, then to Governor, and then to President of the United States. Again, an effective politician, not looking to make value judgments, but he was generally politically successful. For one thing, he welcomed the Internet with open arms. In his words, When I took office, only high-energy physicists had ever heard of what is called the World Wide Web. Now even my cat has its own page. Along the way, however, he built a lingering reputation of sexual misconduct and slight cronyism. By the time the world was introduced to Monica Lewinsky, they were already aware of two other women with which Clinton was entangled. Monica's case was a clincher, she had fooled around with Clinton a handful of times, and she told one of her friends about it. Her friend secretly taped their conversations, which contradicted a previous sworn statement from Lewinsky that she had not carried on improper relations with the president. Why had she been asked that? It's because their relationship was already viewed with some suspicion, and she'd been deposed in Clinton's earlier sexual scam, which was ongoing at the time. So this friend, or perhaps one of history's greatest frenemies—by the way, Microsoft Word recognizes the word frenemies—this frenemy provided the tapes to Congress, and now we're off to the races. President Clinton, already under mild heat for his previous indiscretion, publicly insisted that he did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, and he repeated that sentiment to a grand jury. DNA evidence proved otherwise. Additionally, The investigators leaked large, salacious portions of the tapes, in very small part. She was wearing a long dress that buttoned from the neck to the ankles. He touched her breasts with his hands and his mouth, first through underwear, and then directly. There's much more. These leaks were regarded as reckless, although the public was, of course, transfixed. Clinton was brought up on impeachment charges, which were, for the first time, hotly debated in Congress. House Republicans barely broke a majority on two articles, one for perjury and one for obstruction of justice. Senate Republicans attained a majority, but not a supermajority, and Clinton was acquitted. The proceedings lasted about three months, over which time Clinton's approval rating went up, although his marks on personal integrity, of course, went down. Many point to this scandal as an important swing issue in the 2000 election that heralded George W. Bush. There have been two judges impeached since then. It's also worth noting that impeachment proceedings have been initiated, in part, against nine other presidents, not getting past the hearing stage since 1843. These have been for charges such as constitutional violations, corruptions, and illicit foreign action. So where does that leave us? Well, an important takeaway is the lack of any clear criteria for impeachment. There's just very little precedent surrounding the issue. The framers seem to have envisioned a broad standard, one not necessarily tethered to indictable actual crime, but applicable to numerous political crimes. From the beginning, however, defenders have argued that actual crime is required. Of course, in the case of Andrew Johnson, Congress unconstitutionally criminalized normal executive action just looking to pick a fight. So can President Trump be impeached? The answer is, if the political inroads can be made, then yes, absolutely. A member of the House could introduce articles today accusing him of violating the public trust in various ways, sheltering suspicious persons, providing false information to the Senate, all these framers' standards. But the environment needs to be right. Republicans currently control every branch of government, since Nixon, there's been a predisposition in the Republican Party to interpret high crimes as actual crimes. Accordingly, to achieve a breakpoint with this Republican majority, history would indicate that evidence of actual crime will be required. Even that may need to be buttressed with devastating personal revelations, as with Nixon. The public would certainly prefer this as well. The fact remains that of the three presidential impeachments, two... Johnson and Clinton were impeached for what you could call frivolous or highly political reasons, based on the strength of partisan majorities in the Congress. So, if Democrats had more political control, President Trump could very probably be impeached and removed with partisan listings of his gravest violations of public trust. However, that kind of control will not be forthcoming, based on projections of congressional seats in play, especially in the Senate. Democrats would need to pick up about 30 House seats and 20 Senate seats to attain the necessary majorities, which would be unprecedented and unlikely. The answer in the current context seems to be that it will require either an overt criminal act, preferably several well-documented ones, or one or more extremely serious political disasters, one much larger than we're seeing now. Unless, of course, this steady drip, drip, drip of his approval rating just never stops. Well, thank you for listening. I hope I answered some of your questions and gave some good information. Looking forward to hearing from you, and I hope you have a good day. Talk to you later.